0: Proverbs one seven reads, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I have many favorite passages in scripture. it's kind of hard to pick one, but this may be my absolute favorite verse. If not, it's at least in my top five, you in fact. When rightly applied, what we understand is that apart from acknowledging this verse and having a proper fear of the Lord, we can't even rightly understand the other verses that may be our favorites. This morning, we're going to be walking through a section of Scripture in the book of Philippians. When I consider the passages that we're going to spend our time in this morning, I continue to go back to this passage in Proverbs, and so I thought it would be helpful to start with this. The Word of God in Proverbs 1-7 is laying a foundational reality that we must always keep in our minds and remember if we are ever going to rightly understand anything. You see, when we rightly fear the Lord, when we acknowledge that there is one God and we are not Him, it should rightly position our hearts and our minds to humility. We cannot even begin to have knowledge or wisdom if we do not rightly understand that God is supremely different than you and I, and that God is the only source of truth and wisdom that this world has. If you know me, you know that this particular passage is one that I go to regularly in the defense of my faith, Uh, and it is a proper passage to bring into an apologetics discussion because of what it declares. You see, if you do not begin with God, you cannot begin to rightly understand anything. The clarity that I want you to hear is in the word rightly. You can understand many things. You can be very intelligent according to the world around you. However, apart from God, you cannot account for or justify the things that you think you know. We, and I mean all mankind, are utterly dependent upon God to know anything truly. This reality this reality alone should cause us to walk in an attitude of humbleness, You see, because you and I do not have absolute knowledge of all of the things past, present, and future, the very things that we don't know could prove what we think we know to be wrong. Unless you get your truth from the only source of perfect, infinite knowledge, then you must realize that your knowledge could be incorrect. And that is why the beginning of knowledge comes from the proper fear Of the Lord. A proper fear of God rightly humbles the prideful hearts within our chests. It reminds us of our finiteness and it helps us to fight back against the desires that we may have to argue with God and His Word. A right fear of God acknowledges who we are in comparison to who God is. And this reality, again, should bring a humbleness to us. As we consider the scripture that we'll study today, I want to encourage you to keep this truth in mind. If there are parts that are challenging to you, if there are truths that you can feel yourself wanting to push back against, then come back to this verse and consider that God's word alone is truth. And strive to transform your thoughts so that they line up with God's. Romans 12, 1-2 Now, as I'm laying this foundation for you to consider, I want to prepare you for where we're going to dig into uh, in our passage. Uh, I I titled the sermon, A Life Worthy of the Gospel. Uh, Typically, when I preach, I want to give you a clear view uh, as to the primary points of the passage that we're digging into and what I aim to draw out for your consideration. So um, in that normal mode, uh, I have three key points that I want us to see in our passage this morning and the clear call of God that that we as believers should be striving to live a life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel that has saved us. So my first point that I want us to see this morning is unity. We must be striving for unity to live a life worthy of the gospel. My second point is humility. We must be humble in order to strive for unity, and in order to honor God who has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. And then my third point is a gospel foundation. Um, all of these points, this command, are all wrapped up with this foundational understanding of the gospel, what Christ has done, who God is, and how we ought to then respond. So again, point one is humility or sorry, point one is unity. Point two is humility, and then we're going to finish with point three, the Gospel Foundation. So open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to begin in chapter one, verse twenty-seven, and then we're gonna read through chapter two verse eleven. So again, Philippians chapter one, starting in verse twenty-seven. I can still hear pages turning, so I'm just giving you a little second. <laughs> Philippians one, twenty seven. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Philippians 2.1 So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves yourselves. The reason that we have to begin in chapter 1 is to see the clarity and the connection that Paul is unpacking and continuing on with into chapter 2. When we look at verse 1 of chapter 2, we see it beginning with the word, so. Um, We need to see this word the same way that we see the word, therefore. Paul is continuing his thought from the previous verses. So I want us to see the focus that we need to have, to rightly understand God's point here in chapter 2. Verse 27 of chapter 1 reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what Paul is about to unpack, and of course uh, I say that with the understanding that God is using Paul to write down his truths for us, right? So when I say what Paul is unpacking, you can hear what God is declaring, right? As Christians... In order for us to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, we must consider what it was that Christ did and how, in light of that reality, what we therefore must do. Now, let me be clear. Before we look deeper at this call to live in unity, the command from God to let our, life be li- our lives be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel is not a command to obey and therefore be saved. Uh, I know we, we beat this drum a lot, but it really is worth saying, if you have not heard this before, it's a critical point. The command upon us to let our lives be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is not a command telling us to obey in order to be saved. If you have not already been saved, You cannot obey this command. This point is made constantly from your pastors and your teaching team here. You and I cannot be saved by our obedience. That is not the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this was not something we did. Rather, this was a gift of God given to those whom he chose to give it to it is not a result of works or belief. Rather, him giving us faith is what causes us to believe and then to be enabled to obey. So, I just don't want to start looking at this without getting the order correct. Paul is not declaring that you must live a certain way to be saved. Rather, he is declaring that if you have been saved, then it must be your utter joy, your utter desire to live your life in a manner worthy of the very gospel that saved you. So with that in mind, we must rightly understand that this is a command to Christians. This command is for those who have already been given saving faith. As a Christian, the very thing that empowers us to live a life worthy of what we have been called to is the very truth of the gospel that was used by God to grant us faith and new life In the first place, God is calling us to foundationally remember who we are in Christ Jesus and how we are to live in light of that reality. This is why God declares through Paul the amazing truth of what Jesus did at the Incarnation. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What we see in those verses has massive theological truths, but those truths are not the focus of the passage. So I want to unpack some of them briefly throughout our time this morning, but I want you to see that the focus of these truths and their intended purpose is not just theological in nature. John MacArthur says it this way, As theologically profound as these verses are, its purpose is as an illustration of a proper attitude. Paul Looking at the incarnation of Jesus is not viewing the incarnation for its own sake, but as an illustration of humility. And therein is the ethical implication here. The main point here is not to identify that God became man, but to show that God becoming man, sorry, but to show that in God becoming man, you have the supreme illustration of humility, an illustration which we are called to follow. Here you see self-sacrifice. Here you see self-denial. Here you see self-giving. Here you see humble love. You see, one of the primary ways that unity in the body of believers is affected is a lack of humble love. When we fail to strive for unity it is most often due to sinful pride and to our becoming wise in our own eyes. And we'll get to that point in the second point but just want to draw that out for your consideration now. Philippians 1:27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether i come and see you or am absent i may hear of what you i may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel now all throughout this large section of scripture that we've read in philippians there is this theme of unity within the body of christ now this unity on a grand scale, is absolutely something that we should strive for within the universal church. So as believers, we ought to strive for unity with all believers everywhere. However, what we must consider in light of the context of this passage is that God is calling two specific churches in this letter. This command from God is to church bodies. I really think this is a key part that is missing when we consider this letter. Uh, as we read this letter, we need to think of unity within our specific church body. Uh, I'm afraid that in our modern context, it's, it's just far too easy for us to read this and go, yeah, we, if we're all professing faith in the same Lord, then surely we should strive for unity with all believers everywhere. And again, we, we ought to be doing that, but this language of side by side has a more intimate focus Aimed at specific church bodies. Even consider the opening verses of the book of Philippians, Philippians 1:1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Church, this letter is addressed to all the believers at Philippi, with their overseers or elders and deacons. Paul is specifically addressing this either to one main church or to all of the churches, and he's drawing out a point that you need to consider this in light of the church body that you belong to. What does it matter, sorry, why does it matter to consider the specific church body you belong to when we read this verse? Well, consider this. If we cannot be unified, within our local church, how are we going to be unified with the people of the universal church all over the world? One example that came to mind as I was preparing the sermon is the qualification for elders. One of the qualifications is that an elder must be leading the members of his own house well. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 through He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Christian, the same principles would apply here. If you cannot or will not strive for unity within your own church body, how will you strive for unity within the universal church spread out all over the world? We must see this unity that God is calling the churches in Philippi to as a unity for a specific an individual church body to be focused upon. Because of this, we need to see that unity within the body is a primary way in which we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. In order to live a life worthy of the gospel, we must, we must be striving for this unity. What better way to show the world that God is at work? than when a diverse group of people from all types of backgrounds and walks of life who may not otherwise find themselves in fellowship are able to join together as one family. Not just a a unique God-built family, but a family who strives to overlook an offense, to forgive sin, to love each other, particularly when our sin makes it hard to do so to be vulnerable, and to grow with each other. Not not because we trust each other first and foremost to care for us in our vulnerability, but because in Christ we have all that we need so that even if another believer fails us, we are always secure in him. You see, when we think of others more highly than ourselves, we will be quick to give the benefit of doubt. To forgive, to reconcile, and most of all, we will be quick to strive for unity. This is how discipleship really begins to blossom. This is how we grow together in community by the gospel and truly become a family where there was once not a family. You see, a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel is one in which we as believers stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to strive for unity in spirit and mind for the faith of the gospel. What a beautiful calling that we have been given. When Christians are united under gospel realities as a church body and we strive together for this unity, catch this, it causes a confidence in our faith that protects us from those who would seek to destroy it. Just consider the following verses in chapter 1, verse 27 through 29 or sorry through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, Only God can take a people as diverse as the bodies of churches that God has built, put them together, and cause them to be a family. God can take a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and unite them with the same spirit and the same mind. You see, when we as believers strive for these things, it is a sign to our opponents of their destruction, and it is most clearly a sign of our salvation not coming from something that we have done but coming from God alone only God could do this work ultimately and of course he clearly calls us to strive together and honor him as we strive to do this do you see the encouragement giving here from God to the church in philippi when you strive for these things it builds your confidence it it reminds you that you have a family, a body of believers who are willing to fight, to strive, to work side by side with you for a unity. It shows a watching world, a world that would very shortly after Paul wrote this letter to these churches, turn on these churches in a way that we have never seen here. Lord willing in a way that we won't see, but it shows this world that God is at work And that those who have been saved by him are untouchable. Their salvation cannot be taken. Again, Lord willing, church, we won't see this kind of persecution, but what we do know is that there are churches now who never could have dreamed that they would either. And yet they find themselves in that very spot as we meet together today. As we continue into chapter 2, we're going to see this call to unity continue. Philippians 2, 1-5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and at, of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I hope you see the repetition here, church. As Christians, we are to strive for unity, to have the same mind, the same love, to be in full accord and of one mind. We are to count others more significant. We are to look to the interest of others. This is the mindset we are to have within our local church body if we are going to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Again, we we cannot do this apart from faith. If you do not trust in the finished work of Christ, then that needs to be your focus this morning. However, if you claim to be a brother or sister in Christ, then you must Evaluate your own life and ask yourself if you are striving for unity amongst your brothers and sisters for the sake of the gospel. Now, notice this key understanding that God continually has Paul highlight here. All of this is done in Christ. It's done with this foundational reality that the gospel makes it possible. That the gospel is proclaimed loudly when we as believers honor this. And it is the very example, the gospel is the example that we have as believers to actually carry this out. The very example that Christ Jesus himself gives us in his condescension to take on human flesh at the incarnation and sacrifice himself for the sins of his beloved. Philippians 2, 5-8. You see, Jesus took on a human nature and sacrificially died in the place of his elect so that they would be saved. This salvation is what unites us as one body belonging to the head who is Christ. If through Christ's life, death, and resurrection he has brought together a people who were once not a people, then what possible reason could we have to justify disunity for the very people that Christ laid down his life for? Church, we must not live this way. We must repent of our pride. We must strive to give the benefit of doubt to others, to our brothers and sisters for whom Christ also laid down his life. We must consider the leadership that God has given to our church as elders who will give an account to God for how they care for our souls. I hope you can begin to see that when churches divide, we do not count others as more significant than ourselves, but in pride we rage against the unity that Christ Jesus died for. And When we do this, what it declares to a watching world is that We love Jesus' work on our behalf. We just don't love the others for whom Jesus also died. Church, we can't be okay with this. We must see that because of Christ's example and because of Christ's finished work, we have no ground to pridefully divide with others for whom Christ died. This is the unity that God is calling us to here in these verses of Philippians It is grounded in these gospel realities. If you and I are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, then these realities are something we must wrap our minds around and strive for. We must strive for unity. We must strive for humble hearts who love others above ourselves. Which leads me to my second point, humility. We see clearly that God is calling all who believe to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. We are called to strive for unity. I mean, he repeats it, right? Have the same mind, have the same love. Strive for unity, side by side. This is how we make much of the gospel. It's very clear here that God has a concern for churches then. That this will not be the the normal course. And so he exalts, he, he, he commands, encourages, presses us to consider this. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, when we live our lives with a lack of humility, it will drive us rather to live from selfish ambition. It will cause us to be conceited or prideful, hard-hearted. It will cause us to desire our own comfort and joy rather than others who we are truly blessed to do life with. Do you see that there in the passage? The, the key word in the second half of this verse is humility. When we lack humility, we become wise in our own eyes and we do not consider others first. We know this is key because God gives us the illustration of Christ's humility at the Incarnation as the grounds for the mind that we can have in Christ that would cause us to strive for unity. I want to take a second to look at a large section of Proverbs that really should cause us to regularly consider if we are being wise in our own eyes. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 1 through 12. If you want to flip there, I'll give you a second to to flip there in your Bibles. Proverbs 26, 1 through 12. Like snow in summer, or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool Cuts off his own feet and drinks violence Like a lame man's leg, which hang useless Is a proverb in the mouth of fools Like one who binds the stone in the sling Is one who gives honor to a fool Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard Is a proverb in the mouth of fools Maybe my favorite one here Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now focus in church on verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. I decided to read this entire section so you could see the weight of what the proverb writer is declaring. Over and over he addresses the fool and the folly of the fool's life. But then he puts an exclamation point on this verse. And he says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? Well, even though I said all of this about a fool, there's more hope for them than for someone who is wise in their own eyes. Christian, let me ask you this. How many times have you been offended by someone or something simply because you thought you knew what the other person meant or you thought you knew the intention of their heart towards you in a given interaction or circumstance? Why not instead give the benefit of the doubt? And if you are wrong, trust the finished work of Jesus to cover that offense rather than in your own wisdom dividing and growing in bitterness toward the one who also belongs to Jesus. You see, in our pride, we believe that we know the hearts of others. In our pride, we do not receive correction or reproof. All the one another's in Scripture, the the call of God to do life with one another, to love one another, to correct, to rebuke, to weep with, to celebrate with, all of those calls in Scripture call us to live in unity. They call us to lovingly correct and walk with fellow believers of Jesus Christ. They call us who profess faith to be humble. Apart from this God-glorifying humbleness, we will divide. We will not give the benefit of the doubt. We will assume things. We will grow bitter. All of this will come to us as Christians, and it will be a detriment to our lives and to the lives of the whole church body. Worst of all, it will not bring glory to our Lord and our Savior, the very thing that we as Christians must desire above all else. So circling back to our Philippians passage, what does it mean to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourself? Well, what is selfish ambition? I think many times we can hear this as a selfish desire to be honored or seen as The the most important person in the room, or the most important person in the conversation, and that is part of what that means. However, it doesn't have to be thought of on that grand of a scale. Here's what I mean you don't have to be striving to be considered the greatest amongst the people that you do life with to be living from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition can be as simple as being easily offended. Why is someone easily offended? It's because they take a situation and they believe that they are more important than the way that they were treated. Most often this happens even when the person or the people offending you had zero heart intention or desire of causing an offense. Most of the time they don't even realize that they've done something wrong in your eyes. You see, we live with selfish ambition when we cannot hear constructive criticism as being for our good. We live with selfish ambition when we are easily offended. As Christians, we ought to be the people who are the most impossible to offend. We know the wickedness of our own hearts and the depths of our own depravity and our utter need For a Savior. So we should rightly know that we deserve death for our sin and our offense against a perfect and holy God. In fact, in light of this reality, we should be extremely difficult to offend. Christ Jesus laid down his life to save a wretch like me. Why should I be offended when others sin against me? I've sinned against my Lord more than anyone has ever or will ever sin against me. I know in my flesh this can be a struggle at times. But when I strive to keep my mind always on who I was apart from Jesus and who I am because of Jesus, then I begin to strive for humbleness Who am I that the Lord should die for me? It's a humbleness that should mark us as Christians. And we all have work to do here, right? Uh, If you're feeling convicted, you're not alone. Uh, Many times, well, so far for me, every time I've preached a sermon, I've been absolutely convicted by the sermon that I've preached (laughs) None of us have reached the pinnacle of humility. And if you think you have, then that should probably be a sign there's more work to do, right? (laughs) But as Christians, as blood-bought members of the body of Christ, we must be striving toward a greater and greater depth of humility which draws out unity for us. What can be more humbling than that the perfect Lord of glory took my place on the cross that I deserve for my sin? Christian, those who profess and possess genuine faith have also been blood-bought by Christ Jesus. So shouldn't we be humble toward each other in our lives lived out together? Our example in Christ is the very reason why we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. Now, before we move to my last point to consider, I wanted to share a few more passages just to remind you that this is not only in the letter to the Philippian church, but it's all throughout scripture. Hebrews 13:17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage. To you. You see, Christian, it, it takes a humbleness to submit in any area of life. But what you need to see in this passage is that by doing so, by humbling honor by humbly honoring the leaders that God has put over your church and in your life, it's an advantage to you. I, I think oftentimes we forget that. Ah, if I if I hear this correction and I submit to this, I'm losing something. It's usually pride. Scripture says it 's to your advantage it 's for your good romans twelve nine through eighteen Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You see this constant refrain through Scripture to believers. Love one another. Do it with brotherly love. There's a a regular warning. Do not be wise in your own eyes. (laughs) The the Bible repeats it. It's, It's so regular. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And you see the, the key characteristic of a person that is able to do this is humility. So, how do we live out humility? How do we grow in humility? This brings me to my last point, the gospel foundation. Christian, you must see this today. You and I strive to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel by having this mindset. Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you have been saved by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then this is the mindset you can have. As I said earlier, apart from faith, none of this can be done by you. This gospel truth That God the Son entered into humanity to meet the righteous requirements of the perfect and holy God, in order to become the sacrificial lamb in the place of wretched sinners like us, must grip our hearts continuously, and it must draw us to humility and to a right desire to strive for unity with those for whom Christ died. Do, Do you see that, Christian? When Jesus took on his human nature at the Incarnation, he, at that moment, and forever after that moment, possessed two natures, both divine and human. This is a difficult reality to unpack because you and I can't possess two natures. We possess one. However to rightly understand what Jesus did so that we can rightly understand the mind that we are to have in Christ, we have to do some work here and come to grasp with what this means. Jesus eternally exists as the second person of the triune God. So Jesus has always had and will always have a divine nature. When he took on an additional nature one that was fully human, he did what would be to us unthinkable. You see, the person of the Son took on a nature not fitting, uh, meaning it did not line up in glory or magnitude with the divine nature that he had eternally possessed. It was a humbling of the person of Jesus not an emptying of divine nature that is drawn out for us to see in this passage. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, humbled himself, not by what he gave up, but by what he took on. When Jesus took on a human nature, he did not cease to possess his divine nature. The one person of Christ has eternally had a divine nature, At the Incarnation, the one person of Jesus took on an additional nature and one that would show great humility to take on. When this passage says that Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, it does not mean that Jesus stopped being God the Son. God cannot stop being God. That is an impossible thing for God to do. Rather, what it means is that by taking on an additional nature, a human nature, he showed his great humility because as the person of Christ, he has always possessed a divine nature. To add to that person a human nature would be to add a nature that is lesser than the one that he has eternally existed with. One theologian declared that this was a humility, not by subtraction, but rather by addition. Jesus humbled himself by adding a human nature to his person. Just consider this. The one who created human nature takes on the very thing he created so that he could enter into humanity and do everything necessary to save his people, including having his human nature murdered on a cross. So perhaps you're considering why all of this technical detail that I'm trying to unpack matters to you. Paul is driving home a point that a life lived worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a life lived striving for unity, with those for whom this gospel has provided salvation. It is a life lived out in the humble posture that the Lord of the gospel displays to us in his gospel. Church, if God the Son humbled himself in taking on a human nature so that he could restore a right relationship between his elect and God, then we must see that it is not permissible for the very ones for whom he died to pridefully refuse to restore or reconcile to each other. This is, of course, a very clear point that Paul is making here. If the Lord of glory can humble himself to save undeserving sinners, then those undeserving sinners ought to strive for unity and humility. You see, Jesus not only makes this possible by fulfilling our needs in the gospel, he sets the example for us who are saved by this very same gospel. This is what Paul is aiming at here in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count a quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Christian, in verse 1, the word if that Paul uses here, obviously he's not writing in English, the translation of the word where we get our if is not meant to be considered a question, like if there is this, perhaps you may have this. It's more literally stating that in Christ you have encouragement, you have Comfort from love. You have affection. You have sympathy. You have participation in the Spirit of God. In Christ, we possess all these things. Therefore, we are to rightly strive for unity in our body and with other believers. You see, we have these things through the finished work of Christ in the gospel. And we have the very example of Christ who displays the greatest level of humility ever known in order to serve others. Christian, do you regularly consider what the creator of the universe has done? The Lord of glory the one through whom all that has been made was made, Jesus, the second person of the triune, eternal God, enters into creation, taking on a fully human nature in order to joyfully go to the cross in our place. If that doesn't floor you, if it doesn't produce in your heart the right awe and wonder that it should, then just slow down and consider it again. God the Son did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped by mere humans, so he takes on a human nature, humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a wretched criminal's death on a cross. We must be absolutely floored with this reality, Christian. The person of Jesus never stopped possessing a divine nature. Rather, the person of Jesus took on a human nature, a fully human nature, so that he could enter into his own creation and become obedient to death. There are truly not sufficient words to explain the magnitude of what happened here. The creator enters into creation. The ruler of all becomes the slave. He does this to save his elect and to honor the father. If that doesn't stir your heart to humility, then please consider it again. In closing, I hope you see the clear call from God to us to strive for unity, first within the body that we belong to, and of course, as that grows, we press that out toward the world of believers. This living in a manner worthy of the gospel is utterly dependent upon our striving for unity, our humble consideration of others. And all of this in light of what Christ has done, Not, sorry, for not only effectively through his gospel, but by example in that very same gospel. I told you at the beginning of our time that I wanted us to see these three points in our passage today. First, That as Christians, we are to be striving for unity. If we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel that has saved us, then we must be striving for unity. Second, that in order to strive for unity and do that well, we must be humble. And then third, the gospel is the foundation for all of that. It is the thing that empowers us to do it. It is the example of how we ought to do it. It is the thing that produces joy. Christian, it should bring you joy. To humble yourself so that you can love someone who has possibly offended you. It is a great opportunity to honor the Lord and what he has done to save us. So, I want to end with this. How how does this play out practically? About three years ago, we we walked through Philippians during a midweek series. And Pastor Matt uh, got to teach on this portion in Philippians chapter 2. And so rather than uh, reword what he wrote so well, I simply am just going to quote kind of a longer section of what he did when he used his practical application. Pastor Matt said, So how should we go about this? What should be the desire in our hearts and in our outward actions? Christ-like humility, of course. Christ-like humility in each of us starts with the gospel. Each of us must have a right view of our own unworthiness to be redeemed and reconciled to the Holy God and a right view of Christ's gracious act of love in doing the work required for us. Truly believing the truth of our own unworthy condition as seen in the gospel completely changes the way we compare ourselves to other fallen sinners. In this we know and enjoy the humility And love of Christ, and we bend it out to others, many of whom often don't deserve it in and of themselves. But we have been shown this from Christ. We've received the benefits of this from Christ. Now we emulate Him in showing it to others, regardless of if they deserve it. This is gospel motivated, gospel defined, and gospel empowered. Matt goes on to say, Remember, one does not become humble by anything in himself. True humbleness starts where we started, by being saved by grace, looking to our Savior and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. True humility is a fruit of being united to Christ. Let us always remember this and work from this. So our works are truly good works, and they are for God's glory and others good. Remember that Christ is the model for us to follow in matters of humility. So church, look to Christ. There has never been such a clear demonstration of the character of humility as there is in the Son of God coming to this earth to serve and die for the elect. As Paul points us to Christ, we are called to pattern our lives after his humility and to have joy in it. Philippians has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christians, let this example, let the reminder of what the gospel has done for you Fill your heart with a Christ-like humbleness that we may strive for unity, that we may show the watching world that God is at work and we are secure in him. If you are here today and you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then please consider this. In Christ, you lose nothing. As you consider serving a new Lord rather than yourself, you may think that you lose. In Christ, you lose nothing. Rather, you gain everything. Humble yourselves then and put aside whatever you think you may lose by submitting to the one true God. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, my prayer is that you would do this as a God-saved member of his family and not as an unrepentant receiver of his holy wrath. Hear this very clearly. If you do this, you too will learn what it means to be humbled by what you take on or more rightly said what God gives you rather than what you lose. In Christ, you gain everything because you gain Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together this morning. Lord, thank you for the example set forth by your Son. Jesus, thank you that you took on a nature like ours, so that you could die in that nature, in our place. As we consider where we need to grow in humility, as we consider where we failed to strive for unity, Holy Spirit, would you convict our hearts? Would you draw us and grow in us a sanctification, a love for our church family that would joyfully cause us to overlook an offense to serve, to forgive, to love, even when others do not deserve it as Christ Jesus did on our behalf. May we ever, ever remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. And may that gospel humility grow in our hearts by your power, Lord, for our good, because of Christ. Amen.